Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in our beautiful game. I mean, McGarry, and with me as always is Duncan Castles. Uh, we are currently locked down. I'm sure many of you listening are as well. We wish uh, you all well. We hope you're keeping well. And for those, of course, who are listening, p- possibly on your way to frontline employment, whether it's health or other public services, uh, we give our thanks and also say stay well. And uh, we hope you enjoy the podcast. We're going to bring you news first, as always. And Duncan um, has been getting updates on a young player who is very much flavour of the season. Of course, it's Bubakari Sumari of Lille. Duncan, um, there seems to have been a flurry of interest uh, just in the last two, three weeks. More clubs seem to be coming into the frame for uh, Sumari. What can you do in terms of updating us on his status? Yeah, it's... uh... Sumari is a 21-year-old holding midfielder at Lille, um, France Youth International, um, up to under-21 level, uh, kind of knocking on the door of being picked for the full national team, which shows you the quality. Um, We told you that in January, Lille were prepared to sell the player. Uh, The best offer they had was from Newcastle United. Um, Unusually, Newcastle United beating off all suitors with a, a deal that would have been a, a club uh, record sum that Leo were prepared to accept, but Sumari and his agent um, refused, uh, believing they didn't want to go to that club and there would be better offers in the summer and, uh, and wanting to carry on um, through uh, his first proper season as a regular starter at uh, Leo before uh, leaving the agent in that case asking for a very high uh, percentage of the fee as commission as a way of, of um, persuading uh, Leo that it wasn't going to happen. I can tell you that Newcastle United have again made an offer for Sumari for the summer window whenever that will open and we'll, we'll discuss that subject later in the podcast. Um, I'm told that their offer is for 40 million euros not as high as they offered in January, but I think uh, that is going to be something we see throughout this next transfer market, that transfer fees will come down because there is significantly less money in the game of football because of the coronavirus epidemic. And basically none of the clubs can tell how much less money they're going to have to operate with because they don't know when they're going to be playing again and they don't know what future broadcasting contracts are going to be like as a result of um, the, the damage the pandemic has caused to the sport. Um, I'm also told that uh, of the many other clubs interested in Sumari, Liverpool are one of those clubs that they've been watching the player, I'm told, for two years now um, and rate him highly, uh, have been in contact with the player's representatives to um, you know, do their due diligence. Liverpool probably one of the best clubs in the certainly the English transfer market in terms of assessing not just a player's ability on the field, but their um, their qualities and in, as an individual and how they will, would fit into a squad if they were to sign him. No official um, offer to Lille at this stage, I'm told, but um, an interest there, and I I think. He is a player who uh, is an obvious fit to the Premier League. Um, And I think he's a player that um, one of the players that Leo will look to sell in this window. Um, They need, they're a club that are designed around the transfer market. They invest heavily by their budgetary standards and by French standards and buying the best young players globally um, with the idea of putting them in a shop window. Uh, and uh, taking big profits on their sale when they move on. And Nicola Pepe being the, the cardinal example from the last summer transfer window with his 80 million euro um, transfer fee uh, to Arsenal that they managed to secure. So Lille are, like every other club, under financial pressure. Um, their model is to sell. They, um, as we told you in, in January, wanted to sell then to get the, the fee in so you can 
take from that, there'll be additional pressure on them to try and sell in this window. And uh, a question of, of which of those clubs that like him, whether they're prepared to, uh, to meet and match or better the money that Newcastle United have offered and uh, convince Sumari that that's the right place for him to move. Rich history, Duncan, of um, French international defensive midfielders in the Premier League, going back to uh, Claude Makélélé, who almost defined the role. Um, even before that, Arsenal and uh, Petit, uh, obviously, we currently have N'Golo Conte, and of course the the great Paul Pogba at Manchester United. So there's some uh, fairly. Um, uh, big names there for Sumar to follow in footsteps. It does seem to be a rich um, picking ground for PL clubs in terms of that position. I think you have a combination with a lot of those players of, of physical strength. I should um, say, sorry, Patrick Vieira. Uh, sorry, Patrick, I didn't mention you. Don't come round the house and hit me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, Vieira's a great example. It's, it's that combination of, of physical strength, which you get from, um, in many cases, these French uh, players who, who are of originally of African descent. So you get the, the physicality yeah. of African footballers combined with the the real technical qualities that the, the French and tactical qualities that the French league um, is able to instill in players with their training methods. Uh, and prices are not as high as they would be from other um, big five leagues because the majority of the French clubs aren't. Um, don't have the, the same financial power as, as Premier League, top La Liga, top Bundesliga, top Serie A sides. Um, so I think that's where that market comes from. It seems, Duncan, there was some interest from other countries, clubs in other countries, I should say, but it looks pretty much from what we're hearing from France that it's the, the amount of interest from Premier League clubs would suggest that the players decided this that that's where he wants to play, given the amount of interest. We've got at least four clubs who have registered interest in the player from England, um, probably because he suits, as we've talked about, the other great players who've come from France of African descent, um, how well they've done in the Premier League. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, how that one turns out. Of course, when Samari will actually be available to move is a question uh, much asked and very little answered. FIFA have moved, Duncan, haven't they, to certainly clarify their position with regards to um, the transfer window opening closing times, as well as uh, what they see as a crucial um, aspect of the um, completion of player contracts because, of course, the majority of player contracts uh, end on June the 30th. Um, and if the seasons do actually resume in the, the big leagues after that time, then there is going to be this um, potential impasse between players, agents, clubs, etc., etc. Just uh, outline for us, please, Duncan, what FIFA have said, and and then we can discuss the consequences potentially of that. Yeah, FIFA released a um, fourteen-page document yesterday on COVID nineteen football regulatory issues, um, covering a, a range of areas, including the transfer window, and 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 very importantly, including um, contractual integrity during the, the period in which football suspended and, and when it resumes. Um, on the transfer window, they have decided against proposals that it should be opened immediately and left open until there was discussion that that would be until the end of January next year and potentially until the end of March next year as a way of allowing um, capital to flow between clubs and, and, and allowing the, the clubs most damaged by the suspension of play to sell players to more affluent clubs to, uh, to strengthen their balance books. What they've decided is to allow each country flexibility over when they start and open their next transfer window and when they close their next transfer window. But they want to maintain the system of a, of a summer uh, 12 week window in normal circumstances and a winter um, four week window in normal circumstances. So whenever the season starts and, and they're, they're leaving themselves open to any resumption date, 
the idea is that the, the league can decide then to have their summer window in that period and they can ask for it to be up to 16 weeks long, but that there will have to be a um, date on which, even if they take the full 16 weeks, that transfer window closes for that league. And then they will set another mid-season date for, of, for a four-week window, which will be the approximation of the, the January window. Um, there are obviously going to be complications there if all leagues do not start at the same time and if there are substantial differences between the dates on which the leagues start. I think more important is what they have recommended on contracts uh, because I think this is the, the really thorny issue for um, clubs around the world to deal with. And, and FIFA's recommendation is that the contract of any player um, be particularly the, the, age, the players who are due to become free agents at the end of the current season be extended until the end of their club season whenever that is determined by the local um, governing body or by the league. So if you're a Premier League player who's due to go out of contract on the 30th of June and the Premier League uh, does as it says it, it intends to do, which is complete the, the current season, and that takes, for example, until October to complete, then your contract will be extended until the end of October. Um, if you're a player who has agreed to come to, let's take the Premier League again as an example, so you've got Hakim Ziyech here as a, the most prominent example, who's already uh, agreed terms to join Chelsea at, for next season, then your new contract will be delayed until the beginning of the new Premier League season. So that could be November, say they managed to finish playing in October, then that his contract with Chelsea wouldn't come into effect until November. Um, they have also said that if you are out of contract, and in this case it will be an out of contract player who who their, their player, the clubs have decided not to respect the new termination date of the season and to cancel their contracts for financial purposes. If you're out of contract, you'll be allowed to move anywhere you want and join a club at any point, and there'll be no issues of um, integrity of competition. So say you're a, a Premier League player who has his, his, his uh, contract cancelled by a club, you would be free to join another club in the Premier League and play against that Premier League team during uh, the, the period in which the suspended league is restarted and played. Um, they've also made it, I think, I think you can say, relatively easy for clubs to make unilateral decisions on the cancellation of contracts to save themselves money in that they've, they've, they've put in a couple of get-outs in the regulation to say that FIFA will determine whether such a unilateral decision over the cancellation of a contract or um, reduction of the financial terms in the contracts, so big pay cuts are reasonable or proportional and they'll take into consideration whether there was a genuine attempt by the club to reach agreement with the player in question, the economic situation of the club, the size of any adjustment to a player's contract, the net income of a player after the adjustment to the contract, and whether players in the same club have been treated equally. They've also added in a provision where um, they say, alternatively, all agreements between clubs and employees should be suspended during any suspension of competitions, i.e. suspension of football activities, provided proper insurance coverage is maintained and adequate alternative income support arrangements can be found for employees during the period in question. I think all of that amounts to uh, bending the standard rules of transfers and contracts that FIFA have and that govern every professional footballer's contract in a way that the clubs are, are being allowed as much leeway as possible to argue that they had to um, terminate contracts or reduce uh, the amounts they paid players uh, in order to ensure their the club's financial viability. FIFA recognise that in all of these circumstances, national law may trump their uh, attempts 
to uh, provide guidance and provide a ruling on, on what happens with contracts. Uh, and, I, and I think this is the, the biggest problem we have here is that despite what FIFA say, despite what guidance they give, despite how they change the rules in response to the pandemic, if you start telling contracted players who have a legal contract in the case of Premier League players till the end of, the, of June, that they have to play for that club and they have to play under the same financial terms that uh, their initial contract was for, and that player doesn't want to do so because he has a better off offer elsewhere, then that player will be able to go um, to the UK law courts and challenge the decision and say, I'm, I'm simply not going to play for this club. It's not in my interest to do so. I haven't signed an agreement to do so. Um, FIFA are a governing body of football. They're not uh, a body that determines um, legal contracts in this country. So I, I'm deciding to, to move elsewhere. It uh, would be an extraordinary situation, wouldn't it, um, if a player who was out of contract saying the Premier League left that club um, before the resumption of the season, which did then resume and signed for a rival club and then played the season out as a effectively direct rival of the club we just left. I guess we're not expecting too many cases like that, Duncan. But it's interesting, isn't it, that FIFA have decided to call this one early, a bit like UEFA did when um, they cancelled Euro 2020 uh, in order to effectively put the uh, pandemic problem into the hands of the national leagues and, of course, the administrators who um, take care of them rather than have to deal with any uh, major sort of central issues and squabbles. I suppose they've, they've got a few of them on their hands anyway, and certainly some coming up. But FIFA have done exactly the same in this document uh, by effectively telling players or, and warning players and clubs, this is how we're going to handle it. Now, of course, the problem that they're probably trying to avoid more than any, any else is the just sporting cause um, uh, complaint which a player is allowed to apply for the termination of his club contract on the basis that, for instance, his wages have been cut against his will um, or deferred or he hasn't been paid, etc., etc. I suppose FIFA are desperate to avoid entire squads of players turning up on their doorstep and saying, right, we all want to have our contracts terminated, a bit like uh, when uh, Sporting Lisbon had a fallout with the chairman. Yeah, Sporting had uh, a number of issues with the, the president of the club and uh, a, a fan invasion of the training ground yes, where a great, number yeah. of players were attacked and, and yeah. that was used to uh, to claim just cause and and, uh, and a number of players left Sporting and, and, and other players stayed at Sporting, such as Bruno Fernandes, um, with improved deals uh, and with uh, defined or uh, agreements uh, on the amount of money it would take to allow them to leave the club in the future that were that ultimately played a part in, in those transfers. So the just cause rule is quite a strong one in normal circumstances. And it, and it is because, as you well know, Ian, as you were, you were part of the, the discussions over the, the construction of it when, the, um, when these laws were brought in to deal with the Bosman case, uh, the idea was to put as much power as uh, European authorities needed to be placed in the hand of the players to allow them to have a degree of freedom of movement without bringing the whole uh, football transfer system down. And I think what FIFA are, are trying to do here, as you say, they're trying to push the problem away from their own doorstep. Um, they are kind of, I think, indicating to the players you're unlikely to get much satisfaction if you come to us to complain. So uh, take it to the, the local legal authorities instead. But they're certainly moving away from the position that was agreed with the European Union um, over freedom of contract because the, the simple way to have done this um, would have been to say if a player is out of contract on the 30th of June or whenever, then they are free to move to other clubs. Um, they, the clubs cannot hold them to their existing contract because it, that really is in, in conflict with the, the principle of, of how, how, this, how the players' regulations were designed and set out um, in response to the Bosman case. I suspect, uh, Duncan, if we do see anything um, even remotely like the, uh, the Bosman uh, intervention, which was resolved in 2001, uh, FIFA Extraordinary Congress, it, we will see that 
kind of catch-all phrase of, but these are extraordinary circumstances and therefore normal rules don't apply, being brought up many times uh, to justify things which in other uh, times would not be able to be justified under either the laws of football or indeed the laws of the land in which the players played their football. Alexander Seferin and the UEFA president has been very, very present and visible over these last few weeks, um, not hiding at all. He's been turning up in all sorts of places and uh, giving uh, interviews, Duncan. And you were um, uh, studious enough to uh, translate one from Slovenian, I understand. And this has even got nothing to do with your doctorate, as far as I know. Your, your Slovenian knowledge was just something <laughs> you, you do for a hobby. But, uh, but Se- Seferin... <laughs> did say something quite interesting regarding Belgium's unilateral um, decision to make, uh, uh, which was to null and void their season uh, about 10 days ago. Yeah, it's actually an interview um, done by a friend of mine, a um, Slovenian journalist called Andre Milkovic, who works for the uh, lo- local sports daily, Ekipa. And he uh, managed to get a sit down with Chiferin, who is in Slovenia at present during uh, their lockdown, um, which he did on Saturday um, lunchtime. And yeah, a lot of the conversation um, revolved around that unilateral decision that Belgium had made to end the Pro League uh, last week after 29 games and to scrap the their usual playoff system to determine the champions and the uh, European places. Um, Shafirin said, or claims that in conversations with the Belgian Federation after they did that, um, that they realised that they had done wrong. These are his words in the interview. He said, they will present their case to UEFA, tell us all about their concerns and problems, and then we on the UEFA executive board will decide the case. Um, He says, I have no personal interest whether any league should finish on the field of play um, or be terminated as the Belgians have done and as the the Scottish League would like to do, as the Dutch would like to do. If this is not possible for objective reasons in some places, then maybe it won't be possible. But we, UEFA, have to be the ones who approve the final standings because then we accept clubs based on those standings to the European Cups. Um, He says, we will not harm anyone, you can be sure of that, but we want to know everything in advance. And I made it clear to everyone that I no longer want to read in the media what any given league has decided. So that's kind of, he's he's putting into great detail the threat that was implicit in the letter that he, um, Andre Agnelli, the the head of... uh, the ECA and um, the chief of the European Leagues Association sent out the day after the Belgian decision, which was um, if you decide uh, to finish your leagues, um, we cannot guarantee that you will have access to the Champions League and the Europa League um, uh, based on the criteria you use to finish the league because there are competitions and we have to have uh, control of the entry list and we have to be sure that everyone uh, qualifies for the right criteria and there's not um, legal challenges going on within individual countries over who should have been allowed into the Champions League and the Europa League. Um, And he he talks in in quite some detail about that, uh, emphasising that that is what UEFA Uh, how they're going to operate going forward, Uh, that the preference is still that all of the leagues are played out to a conclusion. Um, And I think the background to this, as we discussed last week, is that UEFA are under severe pressure from their own um, broadcasting contracts for the, the Champions League and Europa League, and they're under pressure from the league's who take substantial amounts of revenue from broadcasting contracts like the Premier League, um, like La Liga, like the French League, like Serie A, to try and give the impression that that they are going to play all of the matches um, before 
uh, starting the new season. So we've seen in the past week um, the Premier League claiming that's um, Richard Masters, um, who is the, the chief executive of the Premier League, writing a letter to the government saying that the Premier League stands to lose over a billion pounds in revenue over the pandemic if um, the current league is not completed. We have um, Javier Tabas of La Liga um, talking about the amount of revenue that La Liga will lose if they do not play the, uh, I think they have 11 remaining rounds of matches in La Liga alone, plus the domestic competitions. He's saying if Spanish clubs don't play again, we are looking at missing out on a billion euros of revenue. If we go back to playing without spectators, it will be 300 million. Even if we get back to playing with spectators, the damage this situation has already caused would be 150 million euros. So you're looking from his, from Tebas's figures of of a, about 850 million euros of money lost if the TV contracts aren't satisfied. For the Premier League, they're they're looking at a similar figure. I think 762. Uh, million pounds of revenue that will be lost if the TV contracts aren't finalised. And, and this is what's driving UEFA to put pressure on the minor leagues not to call their seasons early because they want to try and um, retain a coordinated calendar for the next Champions League season. And if they have uh, various leagues calling seasons early, such as Belgium and Scotland, and the Netherlands, while England and Spain are still trying to complete to satisfy uh, their broadcast partners, then it becomes harder and harder to get the whole European football show running again simultaneously and in a coordinated fashion with a with a coherent entry list um, for the the twenty twenty one season. All this against a backdrop, Duncan. Um which UF and FIFA were already facing before uh, the pandemic took grip globally um, of trying to in, uh, enlarge their already significant um, influence in the world and European games in order to protect themselves and their blue ribbon competitions, which of course the World Club uh, being the biggest European championships coming just closely behind, but both of those administration bodies looking at new uh, ways of creating revenue for themselves, for the clubs, for their members, um, through broadcast deals, new competitions, which would mean players playing more games, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, then this happens and you know everything effectively goes back to a, a situation where, well, nothing can be resolved until football starts being played again it's you know it's the kind of thing i think we've all been saying to ourselves that these last few weeks it's just unbelievable where we we are now from where we were just that short time ago and of course here in the uk uh there continues to be division and derision um about the uh various arguments and indeed the stances of the people in charge and the people who play football um in England, uh, where um, the Department of Sport, Media and Culture uh, has uh, been critical uh, of Premier League and Premier League players and the PFA's uh, resistance to um, either taking a wage cut uh, and making the wage cut a donation to help the fight against the COVID-19 virus. Um, we also have the situation where the FA, Duncan, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, have waded in as well now, talking about uh, football at a crossroads, this being a watershed moment. We could be losing whole clubs, maybe even leagues, uh, never mind just uh, the uh, fabric of this season, which have already been, had huge amounts of disruption. I'm not sure I can see a way around this, Duncan, because there are so many vested interests, so many different people who want different things. Um, and you add to that this, in my view anyway, I think it's unfair pressure that was put on by uh, the um, Health Secretary, Mark Hancock, when he mentioned in that COVID-19 briefing uh, about Premier League players taking a wage cut. Uh, it seemed to be, to be um, ill-advised, 
and a no-win situation for footballers when you look at the fact that there are over 500 billionaires currently resident in the UK, many, many more millionaires. And um, some certainly are making contributions voluntarily uh, to the causes and to help the fight against the virus, etc. But many more aren't, and they just seem to uh, fade away into their anonymity and never get questioned. And I think football has a, a good point to make. It's just that, of course, footballers are in the limelight and people still have the, um, well, some people, I should say, still have the notion that uh, players' wages are paid by fans, which, of course, uh, that is certainly not the reality. Uh, and that's why this argument is, is mostly about how much broadcasting money they would lose. Now, Duncan, you understand that there's also been some friction with regards to um, individual clubs and players uh, who want to contribute in their own their own countries of birth rather than perhaps contribute in England where they pay significant taxes. Yeah, it's, look, I think you're right to, to pinpoint Matt Hancock here or um, Matt Handjob as apparently a source to um, one of the papers I write for, the Sunday Times, um, described the health secretary and some information they passed on to the, the, the Sunday Times reporting this weekend um, and, and his attempt to scapegoat and, and pick on footballers. Um, and that's something that's been extended um, by the, the chair of the... Um, the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee in the, in the Commons, Julian Knight, um, something that forced Masters to write that letter to um, the DCMS committee um, where he defended the, the, the right of Premier League clubs to use the, the, the um, corona job retention uh, scheme um, to furlough staff, as Tottenham have done, as Newcastle United have done, Norwich City, and as um, Liverpool announced they were going to do and were forced to um, uh, do a reverse furlough, as, as someone memorably described it uh, this weekend, um, over that uh, decision to take taxpayers' money to pay um, non-playing staff. Um, Julian Knight responded by saying it is time for the Premier League to stop defending the indefensible. Um, they should be working out a way to carry on paying the wages of club staff without resorting to taking money from the government scheme. I don't think he's wrong on uh, that football clubs, um, particularly extremely affluent football clubs like Tottenham and, and Liverpool shouldn't be using furloughing. But we have to remember that DCMS is the department of British government that on March the 9th, two days before Liverpool played Atletico Madrid in that um, Champions League game where they were knocked out of the competition where 3,000 um, fans came from Madrid, which had an earlier um, development of the, of the pandemic than the UK to uh, Liverpool for um, the day. Um, so in, on March 9th, just two days beforehand, the DCMS official statement was that based upon the current scientific advice from the government's medical experts, there is no rationale to close or cancel sporting events as things stand. And we saw th that game going on. We saw Cheltenham um, going on with absolutely packed stands. Um, I, I imagine no one will never know, no will never be able to find out how many people died as a result of that DCMS advice to keep major sporting events going while the pandemic was spreading in the country. But I think it, that emphasises how opportunistic it is for people like Hancock and Knight to go attacking Premier League footballers and suggesting that they should be the ones who donate their salary um, to the NHS uh, to, to help bail out the government over what have clearly been incorrect decisions in the handling of the pandemic, which have caused it to be worse than it would have been if uh, testing had happened earlier, if a lockdown had been brought in earlier. Um, I think you're right. Within the clubs, within the players, there is a degree of discussion over the best way to do this. Um, my information is that... Uh, the majority of players, the vast majority of players are prepared to donate. They're happy to, to um, salary sacrifice. They don't want the money going to their owners. They don't want to be taking and forced into taking pay cuts, which protect, preserve the bottom line of um, owners like Fenway Sports Group, 
who are um, vastly affluent and own clubs that they've bought for um, a fraction of their, their current value. Um, owners like the Glazers, um, who have made billions out of their ownership of Manchester United, and they don't see why they should take a, a salary cut um, in order to improve the, the bottom line of the of of the clubs um, and benefiting already rich people rather than benefiting the country as a whole. There's also debate over how the the money should be donated. So it's problematic to have a, a scheme as has been proposed by um, Jordan Henderson, Harry Maguire, where the the money raised from a for example a thirty percent salary sacrifice would go to local NHS. Um, and the, there's an argument, and I think it, it's, a, it's a coherent argument, that if you're, for example, a player from Africa or South America, and you see the effect of COVID-19 in your own country and, and the danger your own country is in, you should be allowed to make your um, sacrifice of salary and donate it to uh, the equivalent of the NHS or some form of uh, pandemic prevention in your own country rather than have it go to um, the UK health service, which of course is a health service that all of these Premier League footballers are by relative standards heavily funding because 50% of their salary goes towards taxes, which the government has chosen um, not to put into the health service as it as it would have done in, in previous years, but they, but they certainly there is a, a, a large uh, tax element which does go partially to the health service already from their salaries, and they, their argument is, well, I'm happy to to make the donation, but I should be allowed to choose where that donation goes to. It can't be enforced upon me. There's also another element here which I think some of you are aware of as well, Ian, is that. There's, there's a sense that there's an unfairness in a, a blanket 30% salary sacrifice and that the, the top earners, um, people who are on um, salaries of as high as 15 million euros net um, a season, uh, would can afford to hand over 30% of their pay quite easily um, or relatively easily, whereas if you are... Um, uh, a player who's just broken into the first team in the Premier League side, maybe still on uh, an academy contract or your first proper professional contract, 30% of your salary can be a very significant sum and make a, a, a big difference to the to your standard of living um, going forward. And, and there's also a third argument, which is you're asking us to take pay cuts, or you're still proposing we take pay cuts um, for the coming months. Well, uh, from May onwards, we're supposed to be on holiday anyway. This is our, our very short holiday period in our um, normal uh, football working life over the summer if we're not international footballers. So um, us not playing football at that time and us not playing football being the argument that we should take a salary cut doesn't really work because you're, you're asking us to take a salary cut for a period in which we are entitled not to play football because we should be on holiday at this period. Very true, and and also, again, it just shows you just how um, widely spread the different points of view and arguments are regarding this uh, subject. Many players have their own foundations. Uh, many players uh, make sizable, sizable amounts of their annual salary already to good causes. Uh, just off the top of my head, you know, Didier Drogba built a hospital in, in his um, home village, uh, just outside the capital of of Ivory Coast in Abidjan. Sadio Mane is currently doing the same thing in Senegal. Um, lots of England players, like the J- James Milner, um, has, has a foundation. Stephen Gerrard has a foundation. There, there are many, many ways in which players currently, and yeah, you can say yeah, but that's helping one particular charity, not another, etc., etc. Well. That, that may be the case, but they still are taking responsibility. And on a different note as well, I'm also aware of several players, uh, and this may sound slightly old-fashioned, but especially players who come from um, very poor backgrounds who suddenly find themselves maybe earning two, three, four million pounds uh, before tax per year, um, and who may come from say, very poor backgrounds where a lot of these players do tend to be African. 
they, they send up to 50% of their weekly salary back to their family to make sure they've got a better life where they live and to give them more security and more things that they simply couldn't afford before their son, their brother became a professional footballer. Even people don't really know about those things. They don't factor them in. So if you're talking about affecting other people's uh, you know, well-being, et cetera, et cetera, then that and it's another thing that you know several players might want to cite to their club when being asked to take a 30% deferral or wage cut, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, it will affect their families directly. And, you know, and it's not just about buying a new car. So, um, yeah, the, the, the arguments are varied uh, and widespread. And that's, as I said, uh, at the beginning of this part of the discussion, where I think we, it will take quite a while to resolve this, as um, no one seems to be wanting to take responsibility to take the lead. And also for the government, whenever politics is involved, diversionary tactics uh, are always at work in one place or another. And this is an easy one for the government. Uh, a government who has underfunded the NHS consecutive years, consecutive terms of their rule um, over the last uh, decade, uh, and now seeing the uh, you know the the rotten fruit uh, being produced of that, those policies, and asking everyone else to bail them out. So, yeah, it's a it's a bad situation, but one we're in. So we shall um, see where it goes in football. On a slightly lighter note, although certainly serious for the future of the game, Duncan and our listeners will be very familiar with this argument. I'm just going to ask you a question. In the current modern day, is an arm deemed to be in an offside position when the ball is kicked to that player? Or can the arm be moved into an offside position while that ball is travelling towards them and therefore put the player offside? <laughs> Uh, I think in the, in the current state of play with uh, with VAR, anything can happen with offside. I think we've we've seen that um, through the live football we had in the last season, and uh, and we we we've detailed the problems with the system. We also detailed the the huge problems that football got itself into with um, Schrodinger's handball laws. We as we labelled it, um, we pointed that out before the last season started that it would be problematic. It, I think it proved even more problematic than we expected. Um, IFAB recently uh, moved to change the handball law for next season. And um, what has happened in the in the last couple of days is as a result of the, um, the pandemic, IFAB has informed the various leagues that they can now choose when they resume playing whether to use the 2019-20 uh, version of the laws of football or the revised 2021 laws of football which in itself is fascinating uh, and in itself in a, in a time when we're talking about integrity of competition the idea that the Premier League or um, La Liga or even the Champions League um, and any other major football competition can be played two-thirds of the way through the season with one set of laws, and the final third through another set of laws just gives a lie to any integrity of the, the competition issues. Um, the, the solution, in heavy inverted commas, that IFAB have come up with to um, handball is to say that the shoulder is no longer, if the ball hits your shoulder, uh, you are no longer penalised for handball if it's intentional or if it's unintentional and bounced off you into the net or dropped to an opponent to score a goal. Um, refer to previous podcasts for the, the uh, uh, analysis of all the, the problems with, with that law. Um, and they've decided that you will now, will now make that judgment based on a T-shirt line. So if the ball um, hits your arm below the T-shirt line, then you can be penalised for handball. If it, it hits your arm above the T-shirt line, then you cannot be penalised by for handball and you can score goals off that area of the body. Um, obviously, you can't use the uh, the T-shirt line, um, a short sleeve shirt that the, the player is uh, using for his team because that would encourage teams to vary the length of their short sleeve shirts so it, was a, so it would benefit them in, in avoiding handballs. So actually what's going to happen here is a referee has to make a judgment 
as to where he thinks the T-shirt line is. Um, so you've got actually no more clarity than before in that the previously you had to decide whether it, it was uh, beyond the end of the shoulder or not. Now you have to decide whether it is um, beyond the end of some imaginary T-shirt line that you draw up in your head as a referee or a VAR. Um, the explanation of this, I think, gives the lie to how ridiculous the, the rewriting of the law is. So the, we have one of the IFAB um, constituent members from the Irish FA saying the shoulder itself doesn't really have an opportunity to make the body bigger, whereas the arms do. Um, well, yes, the shoulder doesn't, but this new definition of the law says the shoulder extends to the top of the arm above the t-shirt line and the last time I uh, I tried to do so I was able to make my body bigger by raising um, the, the top of my arm so I, I don't really get the rationale there and then the um, chief executive of the Welsh um, Football Association said basically it's a clarification as to where exactly does the arm start in the case of handball and where does the shoulder finish and um, the clarification that the football um, governing bodies have come to is to redefine what a shoulder is. So a shoulder, according to football now, uh, doesn't finish until it's some way down the arm um, to that uh, uh, archetypal T-shirt line that the, the referees decided to um, imagine in his head or the VARs have decided to imagine their head when having to make these decisions. And if, if anyone thinks that this is going to solve the problem and make it any easier, um, I think they should apply for a, a position in the IFAB and uh, and help them make even more stupid laws for the coming season. <laughs> Two things spring to mind, which I can't help but picture for you all. Uh, one is the idea of the post official measuring everyone's t-shirt lines before they go on to make <laughs> sure they're all universally the same. And the other one is the fourth official approaching Adiak and Fenwa and saying, can I measure your t-shirt line, sir? And Adi's saying, are you, good? Are you joking? <laughs> My shoulder never ends. <laughs> Let's take a look at them. Um, excellent. Uh, yes, I, I think I may do that, Duncan. You know, you know, not much else going on at the moment. Might, might, might as well just apply for a job on IFAB, see what they say. I might even do it in crayon. Um, yeah, and, still... and Andy, and as you uh, as you pointed out when we were discussing this the other day, they've also managed to rewrite the offside law as a result of changing yes. this handball law and bringing the T-shirt line in. So instead of our arguments that we've had with VARs over um, armpits being offside, we're now going to have arguments over um, T-shirt lines being offside. And obviously, um, there will be more parts of the body you can score with now because above the T-shirt line, you can legally score with. So above the T-shirt line, um, now becomes part of the offside decision making, whereas arms were completely excluded previously. So um, good luck, VARs, with that one. I tell you what, you could also you could have sort of retractable sleeves, couldn't you, Duncan? So if you're a striker and you find yourself right on the edge of the offside line, you sneakily pull down a bit, you know, an extra ten centimeters of t-shirt because that might just get you onside. And then when they do the VAR check, then you're onside, then you just put it back up again. <laughs> Something you're already thinking of ways to get through this. I should definitely go on IFAB. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to see you guys. We'll round today off uh, with a bit more uh, levity and brevity as well uh, with our hero and villains. Um, obviously, there's no actual football um, games to talk about, so we're finding our subjects outside of the playing field. Uh, Duncan, you have uh, this week's villain. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, again, an easy one this week. Um, J.W. Henry and uh, Fenway Sports Group for trying to use taxpayers' money to pay non-playing staff wages at Liverpool um, after a period in which they'd announced record revenues of over half a billion um, pounds and uh, spent record amounts on players, um, increased their wage bill, I think, by around 20% in the, the past financial year, um, obviously primarily for footballers, and made um, profits in the process. They decided that instead of um, using their cash reserves and using the, the future um, uh, great economic potential of Liverpool to continue paying uh, non-playing staff that they would uh, use try and use the furlough scheme and take taxpayers' money to subsidise that um, payment uh, instead. And uh, 
well, it's pretty obvious why they're villains, isn't it? Even though they've been forced to retract. And um, I think anyone saying that they should be applauded for the decision to retract is, uh, do you applaud people who do something uh, clearly so unfair <laughs> and offensive for for um, for changing their minds under under massive public pressure? I'm, I'm not sure I get that argument. Well, I, I want this wonderful phrase, the reverse furlough, to somehow be commemorated when football <laughs> returns. So I'm hoping that Liverpool players see, like, get some kind of goal celebration where they do the reverse furlough selling. <laughs> uh, they can think of something that. Or maybe we could ask Jürgen if they could do their um, famous open-top bus parade in reverse uh, to <laughs> to honour the reverse furlough <laughs> through the streets of Liverpool uh, in uh, support with their fellow LFC workers. Um, heroes in short supply uh, in these um, rather darkened days. I'm going to go for an anti-hero therefore. He's been mentioned a few times on the podcast, Mr. Daniel Leverage or should we be calling him Lord Daniel Levy who it has been reported um, has decided that uh, groundsmen who um, have been put on furrow leave at Tottenham Hotspur and therefore whose um, uh, duties have been reduced uh, will be turning up at his um, rather uh, plush Hertfordshire estate to do some work on the grounds there. Sort of reverting to days of days of yore of 17th, 18th century, when the landed gentry would get the local plebs around to do a bit of work because they were obviously idling away in the pub otherwise. So uh, anti-hero of the week, uh, Daniel Levy, um, who we should mention the club, uh, I think have advised uh, that if it does happen, uh, then Daniel Levy will be paying those uh, employees of Tottenham Hotspur privately himself. Uh, so for the, in the interest of fairness, Lord Levy shall be um, given credit for that. That has been the Transfer Window podcast. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it and we know that you do. If you want to keep the debate going, as always, do so on our social media platforms. That is at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, on uh, Instagram and on Facebook. Duncan's on at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I'm at GarboSJ. Get in touch. If you want to, uh, any questions about stuff discussed today. Also, um, as you know, um, we're not running the normal three podcasts per week. I know lots of you um, have noticed that. You've been asking us when the next one's coming out. Uh, never fear, we will be uh, bringing you, we hope, certainly two per week um, in the immediate future. Uh, so we'll hopefully be back on Friday. Uh, so look out for Friday's podcast. Please send in any questions for Q&A. We're going to just mix it up a bit. So any good questions we'll answer uh, on Friday. And uh, that will keep the debate part of the pod going as well. Uh, we just want to thank you uh, in advance as well, because we've been nominated for a very prestigious Best Podcast of the Year Award in the Scottish Press Awards. Uh, that's all down to you guys, obviously, uh, making us uh, quite a popular choice amongst the thinking fans, of course, who we count all of our community. Thank you for that. This has been Wednesday's Transfer Window. We'll see you through the window again on Friday. Thanks for listening. Hey.